do you like data centers? Cause I love data centers! I love data centers. I do love data centers. I love data centers. I live in Brazil. I do. I love data centers. I love data centers. I love data centers. I love data centers. I Welcome to the I Love Data Centers podcast. This is your host, Sean Patrick Terrio. I am truly humbled and honored that you've taken the time to spend some time with me today. Before we jump in, I'd like to let you know that this episode is brought to you by you. That's right, folks. This podcast exists because you want it to. And despite requests that come in for sponsorship, we have no paid advertising supporting this show. This approach gives me the opportunity to maintain an unbiased voice while conducting these interviews. I do have one request and ask of you, however. If indeed you do find these podcasts interesting and valuable, I would greatly appreciate it if you would do me the simple favor of recommending and sharing it through whatever medium you choose, offline or online. If you want to throw a hashtag, I love data centers, in any online shares you do, even better. Thank you once again, and I hope you enjoy listening to this next interview as much as I enjoyed recording it. All right, folks, here we go with yet another episode of I Love Data Centers, and I am excited to have with me Rich Lee, who is also a, uh, a fellow Raleighite, and we'd be doing this in person if we weren't both quarantined in our, in our homes right now. Um, but uh, Rich, thank you so much for taking the time to spend with me here today. I'm, I'm looking forward to this conversation. So am I, Sean. Thanks for having me on. So real quick, and we don't have to go too deep into this right now, but for our listeners, can you briefly explain you know, your, your elevator pitch as to who you are, what you're doing today, uh, and some of the different roles you've had in the past? Sure. So currently, I'm the CEO of a company called PurePort. What we are is a software-defined kind of multi-cloud networking provider. Uh, what we're focusing on is simplifying, automating uh, multi-cloud networking. And by that, I mean we've developed uh, some patented uh, Layer 3 technology that basically simplifies uh, the connectivity challenges that organizations are having as they try to connect to not only the cloud, but to the multi-cloud. So, you know, it's really focused around uh, cloud-native networking multi-cloud orchestration and simplifying the user's journey as they network to the cloud. So a little bit of my background is I've been in technology now for 30 years. This is my third startup. Uh, my first startup was in 1996. I started up an ISP, much like an AOL. We were a consumer dial-up provider. If you remember those old modem sounds back in the day, uh, grew that pretty substantially. We not only did consumer dial-up, uh, DSL and shared in some enterprise hosting, uh, but we did a little bit of kind of your traditional networking, frame relay, uh, OC3 type of connections for customers. So we had not only consumer accounts, but we had small and mid-sized businesses that were looking to connect to the internet. So those were pretty boom times from 96 to 2000. Uh, I was fortunate enough to be approached by a private equity-backed group and uh, early in 2000, I uh, exited that business, sold it to a private equity firm by the name of Great Hill Partners, and we uh, fortunately it was for an all cash deal. And I I say this because you know I'm going to take you through a little bit of a 30 year journey where uh, I've been through three 
you know, pretty significant market uh, recessions. And yeah. if anybody has been kind of long in the tooth in the technology sector, they understand what happened in 2001. So, you know, fortunately, I was uh, able to sell that business all cash in 2000, and we proceeded to go out and roll up or buy 44 technology companies in the span of 18 months. So here I am, a fairly young, inexperienced entrepreneur, operator, you know, pretty good business background, but mostly technology. And so I got thrown into the fire real quick around. Hey, Rich, before, yes. before we dig into the, the story, which I, we're going to get to that, I promise. Um, okay. I'd love to know how, how you got into it in the first place. You know, growing up as a kid, were you surrounded by technology? Did, did you have influence from relatives uh, that were introducing you to this when you were at home? You know, what, what was that early impetus to drive towards IT in the first place? And sure. you know, was it something sure. in college or, or high school or what was that? Where did that stem it, from? It, it, it absolutely was in, uh, in uh, my late high school, early college days. My father, I'm a Navy brat, so we moved around uh, for the, most of my 22 years uh, through co my college days. But late high school, early college, my dad actually retired uh, for, as a captain in the Navy, and he started his own little uh, computer delivery service. So I got ingrained early into old IBM PCs, configuring those from bare bones all the way up to installing hard drives, memory cards in those, uh, network interface cards. And we used to deliver to quite a few local businesses. So we'd buy uh, bare bone chassis and build them up and sell them as fully configured machines. This is back in 1984, 85. So as I went off to college in, uh, in uh, 1983, I Lotus uh, one two three Ashton Tate had DBase three. I started getting into a little bit of computer programming, and really just fell in love with computers. So as this evolution went from kind of the mainframe to the micro PC, I was involved pretty much in the early phases of uh, you know just PCs and laptops, and you know built up kind of a little mini bar or reseller type of business through my dad's company. So as I'd come home on summer breaks, we'd build up a bunch of computers and deliver them around. And so I kind of fell in love with computers back in my late high school, early days. Uh, back then, you know, the margins on computers were really high. You could configure a computer for 2000 sell it for $3,500. And obviously, those days are kind of long gone. But that was a, uh, a great intro into technology for me. Perfect. And it's, it's key because it's interesting in our space and in our industry as I interview more and more people. Um, there are a lot of folks who really weren't into technology until much later in life. You know, people who came out of college with, you know, biology degrees or, or um, anthropology degrees and spent uh, years going down different rabbit holes before they moved over into our sector. And it's, it's interesting and I think it's useful for readers to know that you don't have to be a geek at a very early age in order to come into the industry and, and be successful. But um, I, like you, was involved with IT at a very young age and, and knew that I had a passion for it, but that's, that's not necessarily always the case. But um, I appreciate that. So let, let's fast forward then. So back to the timeline of the story, you had uh, an ISP, you sold that to a private equity firm. Uh, 
Um, you had some cash. It was around 2000, right before the, the big bust, right? So there was good timing. Um, and you started looking out in the market and saw other opportunities to play. And I'll, I'll let you jump back into that. Sure. So uh, as I sold in early 2000, I, I continued to work for that uh, that roll-up entity. And it was really interesting. that In that 18 months, I worked for them. That, that was the I had a mentor by the name of Peter Hopper, who's right now in the M&A advisory services businesses out of New York. But, um, you know, he gave me in 18 months uh, the, the best kind of what I would like to say is kind of connections and insight into the business side of the te- these technology companies. So, as you can imagine, going out there and acquiring 44 companies in 18 months is a bit challenging. And it turned out to be very challenging because that entity ended up, when the meltdown happened, ended up getting uh, sold off to Earthling for you know probably 40 to 50 cents on the dollar. But you know acquiring 44 companies in 18 months, you get to see a lot of good technology companies. You get to see kind of a lot of bad technology companies. You get to learn some best practices. But more so than that, I got really... Uh, a strong, firm understanding of kind of balance sheet, income statement, due diligence, leveraged finance, how private equity guys think, how M&A advisors think. And along the way, I made a lot of contacts and connections in both the private equity and kind of the advisory services space through some of these boutique investment bankers. So even though that entity ended up getting sold off to Earthlink, in those 18 months, I learned probably more than I could have in 10 to 15 years. And so that was, you know, hugely beneficial to me as I ended up leaving that entity. Uh, this is now mid 2001. I hired a uh, investment bank to scour the country. And we all know the market meltdown of 2001, or I think a lot of people that live through it understand, you know, it's kind of a lot like what we've got going on today. Uh, and data centers had fallen on very hard times. You had a lot of companies that raised a lot of money and had built a lot of these very nice tier three, tier four type data centers, you know, typically 150, 200 watts a square foot. that um, had really fallen on hard times. They'd gone out and built 10 or 12 data centers, had no customers, raised $100 million. And I really felt like that was where the next explosion and kind of the IT industry was going. So as you know, fortunately I sold off that uh, dial up business just as cable modems were about to start. I really felt like data centers in 2001, were going to be the next big play. I really felt like companies were going to outsource their data center infrastructure to providers instead of trying to do this on their own. So uh, they pointed me to a, to Raleigh, North Carolina. I moved to Raleigh. I bought a, bankrupt internet firm by the name of Utenzi, which had just about an 8,000 square foot data center, uh, earning a little bit of cash, but not a ton of cash. And I acquired that for $375,000 in 2001. So Rich, with, with that being said, the, the business that you are currently involved in, PurePort, is, is an SDE, software-defined interconnection uh, company, but that the bulk of the experience was in and around managed hosting services and hosting and data center services. And the, the different mergers and acquisitions that you were part of um, along that way were, were varied um, as to who you were working with and who you were selling to, right? 
because uh, some one was a big carrier in uh, I think it was Windstream, and the other was Tierpoint, um, and then you got private equity involved. So that's a lot of you know your experience is extremely unique, right? I could probably only think of a half a dozen individuals who have that pedigree and that experience working with that many different players in and around our industry, uh, given how you know, relatively new we are uh, in our space, um, especially coming up with these decades to come with infrastructure growing and scaling the way it is. Um, it, what, what are some of the key takeaways and lessons that you learned um, with each one of those transactions? Like, is there a common thread or were they totally unique uh, as standalone individual transactions or what, what are your thoughts there? You know, I think all of them were, were totally unique. Like I said, I've, I've, for the most part, you know, been fairly thinly capitalized, hosted solutions. Uh, I, like I said, I acquired that firm for $375,000 out of bankruptcy. I grew it from a single data center, uh, raised a total of a million and a half dollars, and over time uh, acquired a variety of other data center platforms. Uh, ultimately, we had three in Charlotte, two in Raleigh, and one in Boston, but we acquired these and picked these off along the way as we grew uh, our cash flow and our customer base. So, you know, I think the things that I've, I've learned that have served me pretty well in business is just kind of one customer at a time, one day at a time, never get too far outside uh, ahead of your ski tips. And we built very strong fundamental operating businesses that had real cash flow, real EBITDA. And, you know, that in itself, I found to be kind of a very powerful business model. So I think it's served things that served me well, especially as we entered 2008 and kind of the real estate meltdown was, you know, we built a very fundamentally sound business on the back of real customers, real cash flow and real revenue. So the, the experience though at Windstream, I think is an interesting one because there was a period of time where uh, Verizon and AT&T and uh, CenturyLink uh, and various others were all, Zayo, were all jumping into the infrastructure game. And the thinking, as far as I, I've learned, is that if they could also control and sell managed services and data center services, it would be an easy add-on to all the network and carrier services that they were selling. Uh, and so, hence, you know, some of the, the acquisitions that occurred uh, in and around, uh, it was probably early to mid 2000s uh, and early 2010s, um, you know, how did that play out for your business within, within Windstream? Because that, that acquisition only lasted a handful of years before they divested of that asset. And what, you know, what was your experience through that process? And what, why do you think they chose to divest? And why do you think these other telcos have chosen to divest of their, their assets to that extent? Sure, Sean. I think that's you know from I've, I've got a I've got my own take on this. I'm sure some people may have different takes. You know, I I speak from you know what I think is pretty relevant experience. So, in 2010, you know, Windstream approached us, and uh, we ended up doing a transaction with them for 310 million dollars. Um, hosted Solutions was a little bit of a uh, an omnipotent sector. At the end of the day, we 
we were uh, 65% managed services and 35% colo. So we we did a lot of replication, load balance, you know, managed storage, managed backup for customers, a failover. Um, so we had a fairly complex business. And I knew when they came in there that, you know, this was going to be a little bit of a challenge for them to really understand, uh, you know, going out there and procuring everything from, you know, Dell servers to EMC backup systems and, you know, fully managing that in a repeatable fashion. Um, obviously, you know, they they acquired us for a high multiple of EBITDA. Um, and I think they did a decent job in the early days of kind of running hosted solutions. They took us from six data centers to 26 data centers. They put a lot of capital into the business. Um, and they really helped kind of scale that platform with obviously institutional type of publicly traded funding, which you know, as a pri- small private uh, data center oper- operator, we didn't have that. So it really kind of supercharged the business. You know, at the end of the day, Windstream fell upon some pretty hard times in the public market. You know, they had a lot of, as you guys know, landline customers. They had uh, uh, some fairly old, antiquated, you know, M- MPLS networks. They had, you know, a variety of different business and operational challenges they were going through. So. Here they have this fairly high-flying, fast-growing data center provider that honestly is trading at kind of a 15-time EBITDA multiple, kind of hidden inside this, uh, you know, stodgy old telecom operator, you know, probably trading at about a four-time multiple. So I think as they started falling on a little bit of hard times, you know, they had this kind of high-growth business that was trading at this high multiple that they weren't unlocking the value for. So, you know, at the end of the day, I think they needed some capital. I think they sold the business to get the, you know, had the highest you know, multiple. And they ended up uh, selling that to TierPoint. You know, TierPoint's done a variety of other roll-ups. And uh, so they've built some scale into their business. But, you know, I think having some of these data center assets inside of these telecom companies um, proved to be challenging. You know, especially a managed service provider that did a lot of complex services that, you know, to some extent still are, you know, very hard to do on a repeatable basis. You know, they can't necessarily be controlled by an OSS, BSS platform. And so I think you've got some kind of complex businesses hit inside some businesses that are, you know, at the end of the day, all about automating and you know, the dirt, so to speak, in terms of fiber and, you know, telephony for customers. Well, the, the other key piece in my experience, and as you know, having built some very successful sales teams in the past, is it all comes down to the conversation and the relationship between the customer and the sales rep and the sales support team. And when you have uh, an entire sales support team that has been trained in one uh, specific technology that's then told, hey, you need to now learn, as you mentioned, all these other new backup disaster recovery um, platforms and services and servers and operating systems and whatnot, it becomes a little overwhelming. And so the default response is to go back to what they know and understand versus, you know, maybe a select few will expand their horizon and have the capacity to pick up these new services and technologies and understand workloads and optimization and how that plays into business use cases for a customer. Uh, But, you know, 
truthfully, in all the training that I've done with the different carriers and with the different even partners that are, come from a primarily telecom background, what I've found is that it's very, very difficult for them to make that shift. And so they don't. <laughs> they, they, they default back to what they know and what they do well, uh, which might be phone systems or it might be the transit transport services, instead of trying to ask larger questions and deeper questions and prodding about where data lives and why versus how data gets from point A to point B. Um, no, that's, that's, a, that's, that's, uh, I appreciate you brought that up. Uh, I wasn't going to delve too far into some of the operational complexities of, you know, owning these data center providers, but that was a huge change for range And I know it has been for other, you know, uh, CLEX or kind of LEX that uh, have taken on some of these assets is, I mean, fact of the matter is not really going to happen in all practical purposes. You really have to have these kind of split up and you have to just, at the end of the day, hopefully train some of these reps on enough to ask the right questions and then make sure that you're bringing in an appropriate uh, sales engineer or resource to help uh, get that customer across the finish line so you can sell a multiple service and kind of bundled services. But, you know, fact of the matter is some of these, these, these sales reps, they're coin operated and they're, you know, they're selling speeds and feeds and that's what they do well. And that's what they should kind of continue to do well uh, and hopefully ask the right questions and you have the right operation organizational structure to uh, bring in the appropriate resources at the appropriate time to, uh, you know, bundle some of these services together. And I, the uh, interesting, you know, look close to home, right? We have rapid scale that has a, mm-hmm. a big East coast presence here, downtown Raleigh. And when they were acquired by Cox just recently, right. I was like, Oh no, <laughs> it's going to happen again. All the, you know, all the team and the resources and the capabilities that rapid scales built up is going to be screwed up by this big, you know, telecom giant. And what was interesting is they've, Cox has taken a very different approach. And as I've been digging deeper and deeper into that uh, acquisition and how Cox operates is they tend to be very hands-off and they want the company that they acquired to keep their brand, keep the team, to have it just be a wholly owned subsidiary of instead of absorbing it in and under the umbrella and name of a company. So it's, you know, rapid scale, uh, a, um, I don't even know if it's considered a division of Cox or, or how they positioned it, but they've kept everything the same. And in fact, what they've done is just provided capital and resources to help that company grow and scale, uh, which is not too different than what Shaw Communications did with Via West initially. When Shaw bought Via West is they realized that they wanted the expertise and the talent from ViaWest. And so they brought that into their organization to help them become smarter and better at what they were doing versus the opposite, which was, hey, we acquired you. Now we're going to try to assimilate you into our ethos and our culture and how we do things, which from what I've seen, you know, operating a managed services and data center company and managing managing a, a telecommunications company, they're two very different organizations that require different skill sets, management styles. Uh, just a lot of very differences between the two organizations. And when any one of these companies tries to assimilate a managed services or data center company into their culture, almost, you know, I can't think of a single time that that's been successful. Uh, yes, no, I agree wholeheartedly. Some of the Cox guys are, are ex-hosted uh, guys, the, the guys that are running the, uh, I mean, rapid scale, the guys that are running rapid scale, you know, and I think they've been, you know, very, 
thoughtful in how they've gone about that acquisition, that integration, the go-to-market strategy by leaving them alone and giving them all the enhancements of kind of the Cox customer base and, you know, some of the power and the capital uh, that Cox can supercharge that business. And I think they've done a wonderful job of doing that. They've left them alone. They've been fairly hands-off. And those rapid-scale guys, you know, they're growing, they're doing their thing. And they're taking advantage of, you know, the size and scale now to put a kind of a managed services platform, you know, enhance everything Cox doing. Cox is doing around SD-WAN, virtual desktop, and, you know, being able to, uh, you know, like you said, keep a hands-off approach to it and just let those guys do what they do best. So I briefly just touched on this about Raleigh, right? Um, in you were you born and raised here? In, you, know, you, you were a brat. You mentioned a, a Navy brat traveling all over the place. But why why Raleigh? How did you settle here and choose Raleigh? And even as you were growing and scaling a technology company, what made you decide to stay here and continue to grow and, and scale here? Well, interesting question. So the pr- prior ISP I had that I sold was out of Orlando, Florida. So I built that up over four years. And like I said, I worked for the roll-up for about a little over a year. Uh, hired an investment bank. Uh, they went out, scoured the country. So I didn't know a soul here in Raleigh, but they pointed me up to Cary, uh, North Carolina. And I went and looked at a data center. You know, I'd already looked at four or five different data centers uh, across the country. And, you know, this one was particularly interesting because it had fallen into bankruptcy, fallen on hard times. And I don't want to go too fast here, but uh, long story short, it was around a nine to $10,000 facility. I had about a little over 100 grand a month of recurring revenue um, from $600,000 a month. So kind of life were going out when I bought it. So, you know, I was fortunate enough to win that, like I said, out of bankruptcy for $375,000. Got in there pretty quickly, kind of righted the ship, uh, kept most of those uh, $100,000 of revenue in there. And then slowly but surely, uh, went out into the marketplace and we were just a local regional provider. And that was the game plan. I felt like, you know, if I could take a lot of the capital out of the equation of these data centers, as everybody knows in the data center business, this is a very capital intensive business. So here I was, you know, an operator that had some dry powder that had skills that, well, I think I had skills that knew how these businesses run. You know, this was a business that if I could fill up that data center, you know, could generate, you know, 90 to 95% EBITDA margins due to me taking all the CapEx out of the equation. So here I am bought a probably, you know, seven, eight, $10 million data center for $375,000. So if I could fill that up, um, you know, just like the hotel business, it's a lot of flow through EBITDA that goes right to the bottom line. And that's what we did over time. We filled them up and kept going and acquired some other providers, you know, uh, at pennies on the dollars back in 2002, 2003, 2004. So it was a terrible time to be in the business. But if there's any lesson learned, it's that, you know, if you're an operator, you got some dry powder and you got a little bit of oxy and a little bit of uh, risk, you know, you can go out and acquire some assets, you know, at very attractive prices. And that may happen here again now in 2020, 2021, whether it be in technology, real estate, you know, finance, whatever it may be, you know, there's always, there's always sometimes a recession somewhere. And, you know, fortunately, I found it in data centers back in the day. So from, you know, I'm relatively new to Raleigh, moved in January 2016. And 
have been told numerous times that I came here at the perfect time because, you know, downtown has changed so drastically over the last uh, five, six, seven years. And the reputation of this, this area has grown dramatically over that time frame. But you were here, you know, roughly 20 years ago and Raleigh was a much different place. Was there just as much or probably not just as much, but was there, was there activity going on on the IT side as there is today? And what did the landscape look like here back then? You know, I think Raleigh's always been fairly entrepreneurial in nature, you know, obviously with RTP here in our backyard. It's it's always been a decent environment. Clearly, 2001 uh, is, you know, decidedly different than, you know, the RTP area here in 2020. And I think you could probably say that about Silicon Valley and a bunch of different areas as they've kind of gone through some boom times. But, you know, it was it was a good time to be in business uh, ever since 2001. I felt Raleigh's always been a great, supportive, entrepreneurial, a lot of strong IT, healthcare, biotech companies in this area. I mean, back in the day, you still had your Cisco's, Lucent's, Alcatel's, you know, some of these companies I know are no longer around. Um, but, you know, there's always been a pretty strong technology bent to this area. And that's why I think it was great to get my first uh initial start here, especially with, uh, um, you know, um, my first single data center. I think I picked a good location. Yeah, I, I would agree. Uh, and I appreciate everything that you've done because part of the, part of you're part of that history and part of that story and your success has led to lots of other people's success in and around this area um, who have bled out into all the different companies. Like we mentioned rapid skill. So that's, that's, uh, it's interesting, I think, for people to to know and realize. And I, I've I do a lot of economic development work, and I've spoken about this on prior podcasts and whatnot. But it, it takes those successes in these types of markets uh, for that money to then start bleeding out into other newer entrepreneurial ventures, which can then grow and scale and hire more people, which will hopefully result in more wins that will then lead to more entrepreneurs starting more companies and growing and scaling and buying more real estate and building more buildings and whatnot. So that's all part of the, the fabric of what has made Raleigh, Raleigh uh, and Durham, Durham and RTP, RTP over the last 20, 30 years. So um, I don't know if anyone's ever, you know, personally thanked you for that, but they, they should be. <laughs> <laughs> well, for, you know, we, we were, we were, you know, my, my ISP business, my data center business, you know, I, I feel fortunate to have, and I say this all the time, you know, and, you know, I've had very two, two very successful, pretty large exits. Um, and, you know, it takes a village. I've, I've surrounded myself with smart, talented people that have helped me grow these businesses. But I think more so than that, <laughs> you know, we've had tailwinds at our back. You know, when I got into these, both of these businesses Back in the day, now the data center was a you know the first couple of years were really rough as we were going through the 2001 technology meltdown. There wasn't a lot of business to be had, but you know around 2003 2004, you know we had tailwinds at our back, and you know companies were outsourcing their IT needs, and you know we had good strong facilities, good people took care of our customers. You know a lot of the very simple business philosophy: one customer at a time, one day at a time. You know cash flow, EBITDA, fundamentals. You know, those are those are not lost on me. And, you know, I think from from my perspective, you know, we 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 built something that was, you know, a strong, a strong business. But more so than that, you know, it returned a lot of that capital due to us only raising a million and a half dollars and exiting for three hundred ten million. A lot of that capital went to, you know, 
the ownership group, the management team, and, you know, the VCs didn't scrape that off. So, you know, there's a reason you've got guys like, you know, the Bob Buchanan, Dwayne Barnes at Rapid Scale, you know, they've gone out and created a lot of value for themselves. You know, they've, they've seen how this kind of happens. They've seen how this plays out, but more so than that, you know, they've done very well and they've been able to, you know, come their business. So the capital going into, you know, the owners and the, you know, employees pockets, I think has enabled some of that success too. And this is not to, you know, bash VC private equity or anything like that. But, you know, if it, the more money that can go into, you know, the ownership groups pockets that are going to continue to fire up new businesses, you know, and develop new technologies and things like that, I think can be very powerful. So you hit on one of the topics I wanted to ask you about and it has to do with the people that you surround yourself with. What what are the qualities and attributes and or experiences that you look for in people and you know when you're having interviews and conversations, how do you know when you're like what is the aha moment where you're like, yep, I think this guy's a winner or this woman's a winner. Um, let's make the bet and and bring them in. You know, that's a, that's a tough one. I mean, we've all, I mean, I'm sure you as well as everybody listening on this call, you know, sometimes sits there and goes, wow, how did I surround myself with such great people and things like that? Well, fact of the matter is, you know, some of it's trial and error. Some of it's, you're going to, you know, bring some people in, they're going to be, you know, hit or, hit, hit or misses. And, you know, I, I've always been one that, you know, kind of looks for that attitude, the can do attitude, the hunger. Um, I want them to have experience. I want them to have, you know, the proper training, the skill set. Um, but, you know, I also want them to be very hungry, you know, and I want them to show an ability to learn and an ability to adapt. And not only that, you know, I, I've typically, um, you know, working in small kind of entrepreneurial businesses is not for everyone. And so I need people that are understand when they come in, they may wear a different ball cap depending upon the day. You know, and I need to need them to embrace that ball cap, and I need them to, you know, make sure that they can, uh, you know, adapt, learn, grow, change. And at the end of the day, they, I want them to be smarter than me. You know, in the, I'm not a CFO, I'm not a COO. Um, you know, I want to make sure I'm surrounding myself with people that are smarter than me. Kind of leave your ego at the door. We're all coming in here trying to grow this thing, trying to have fun. And so, you know, I think I've been, you know, pretty good at making sure that, you know, that we've been a kind of a ego-free organization. So what, what is a way that you can read from someone that that hunger is more than just lip service? And I, I ask because I've, I've found it difficult <laughs> in my own uh, hirings over the last you know, 15 years uh, to be able to push through the talk uh, without having to bring them in and just see what happens over the course of three months. Uh, You know, for example, someone might come in and work their ass off for the first four weeks or six weeks or eight weeks, and then you start to see that productivity level die off. Um, And you can have direct conversations about why and what, um, and yet you have others who just have the pedal to the metal and they may need to, you know, take some PTO days or whatever, uh, but they're they're just hungry, and you know that they're hungry because they're demonstrating it day in and day out. Um, is there a way to, you know, do, do you have a secret silver bullet here to help, um, you know, identify those winners from those who get burnt out too quick and or just 
telling you what you want to hear? Man, I, I wish I did. I wish I had some sort of secret sauce that I've developed over the past 30 years. But like I said earlier, there's been a lot of hit and misses along the way. And I think when you recognize you have a miss, you know, you need to be able to and I kind of pull the trigger. Sometimes, you know, I say you're you're either on the bus or you're off the bus. And I think recognizing sometimes when guys are off the bus is half the battle and, you know, making the appropriate changes and, you know, I I feel like I've had more hits than misses, but, you know, sales is one where I think everybody on this call, um, as well as you, you know, it, it's so hard with sales to, you know, like you said, figure out if that guy's got the same fire in the belly six, eight months into the year as he does, you know, throughout. And there's little tricks that we did, you know, with our sales force because, you know, um, uh, you know, I could wax poetic for hours on this, but, you know, making sure that, you know, you've got the appropriate sales structure so that the, you know, the, the new recurring revenue, you know, gets comped at a higher, uh, rate than the kind of existing customer revenue. The, that they had a minimum number of customers they had to sign up every month because, you know, what I really hated was the guy that would sign up one existing customer for a $25,000 a month recurring revenue contract. Um, he's an existing customer that just says, Hey, give me eight more cabinets or give me this or give me that. And, you know, that customer, that reps pounding themselves on the back and saying, I'm going to go play golf the next three months. You know, you just, you have to make sure that, you know, organizationally, structurally comp plan wise, you know, they're, they're doing the things they need to add new customers to, you know, hit minimum new customer revenue thresholds. And uh, so I think I've done a pretty good job. I and mean, that's taken me a long time to figure out just due to the frustrations around, you know, exactly what I mentioned before. But uh, there, there's a lot of things you can do with, you know, kind of the structure to make sure, you know, that, you know, that, that uh, you know, their, their interests are aligned with the organization. So how do you, that's actually a very key uh, topic right there that I don't have an answer to. And I just, and I'm, you may not have the answer, but I think it's worth a conversation. You bring in a sales, let's say I'm a sales rep working at, at one of your companies and I bring in a large account and I have a close relationship with that client within that account, right? So mm-hmm. you don't want to firebomb that relationship and say, hey, thanks, sales rep. Uh, you know, thanks for bringing in the account. Here's your comp on that deal. Uh, but all the net new is going to be pushed over to the inside sales team. Which then demotivates and de um, there's no more incentive for that person to maintain and keep that relationship as strong as it could be or should be uh, to give the feedback internally if there's issues or problems or you know whatever it is growth uh, future projections going on inside that account. So how do you how do you massage that and play that? Um, I haven't really seen anyone who's been able to do that extremely well. Because it's either it's very binary. It's you give the person full ownership and control, uh, and they do you know just rake in all the net new growth that comes off of that account, and they don't have to work all that hard. But you make them you know a large account holder, and maybe they manage three or four large accounts, or you take that account and you feed it to the inside sales team, and that person is removed from the process, and then you don't really quite have that same type of relationship between the client and the provider. Uh, and so things get dropped and get missed and, and the client's not happy at the end of the day. Um, where's that middle ground and how do you, how do you play that middle ground? 
I mean, I'll give you some, you know, examples of some of the things we did at Hosted. And, you know, it's not going to fit for every organization and it's not going to work for every organization. It's kind of worked for us. But, you know, a, a, a new, say a new rep, a new hunter, you know, uh, got to sign up uh, all of his accounts in a calendar year. So if he landed that big, you know, massive account, you know, he got to keep them that whole year. Um, then they would all be transitioned into the inside sales group um, this next year, except for they got to keep their top five or the top five they thought they were going to grow the most. So, you know, they could have signed up a, you know, a hundred thousand dollar a month account uh, as well as a twenty thousand dollar a month account. But they knew that twenty thousand dollar a month account may, you know, grow substantially or they had some big, big designs on you know, multiple data centers, multiple footprint, whatever it may be. Um, so they got to pick their top five that they thought they could grow the most for the next calendar year. And then the rest transitioned into the kind of inside team. Um, like I said, not perfect, but it worked pretty well for us. And I think you have to, you know, if, if you're an organization, you know, especially if you're small, you know, we had, you know, less than 20 reps and everything. So um, it was pretty easily manageable to where, you knew that your inside team, you know, was going to take care of that customer to the same level the other rep took care of that customer, you know, or they were going to kind of be problems, so to speak. So, you know, we, uh, you know, we were, we, we like to give what we called high touch support. You know, sometimes you, so that's just a saying, but, uh, you know, we always felt like our inside group would give them just the same, you know, care, love and attention as an outside rep. And at the end of the day, you know, outside reps I have found, you know, are really good at hunting and going out there and, you know, landing new accounts. They're not necessarily great with the paperwork for that customer that says, hey, give me an extra cab, give me an extra meg, give me a this. You know, they're they're not good at that transactional stuff that as the account gets transitioned over. The inside team, I think, actually does better at taking care of these, you know, small customer upgrades than, you know, so to speak, the uh, outside reps do. So through through all of that that experience, can you think of some of the hardest decisions that you've had to make in that process? Um, maybe some painful ones. You know, I know as an entrepreneur that I've not slept numerous nights <laughs> trying to map through and talk and have the self talk through conversations I was needing to have the next day. Uh, but are, are there any that stand out to you? Uh, you know, to this day that you've had to go through over the last. 20 years? Yeah, I mean, the one that kind of affected me the most, and this is back in 2001, was when we, uh, you know, the, the I like to say NASDAQ dropped from 5,000 to 1,000, literally overnight. Um, you know, it was a technology meltdown. You know, here we are, had gone out and bought 44 companies, raised, I think, uh, 300 million of, uh, 100 million of uh, equity and about 200 million of debt. And, you know, had bought a bunch of ISPs for kind of three times kind of sales. Uh, and all of a sudden overnight, they're valued at about a third of that. So, you know, um, you know, the head of the private or equity organization flew in, basically said, you know, got all the executives in the room and said, you know, you got to find, you know, 50% kind of expense savings, you know, basically overnight. And so, you know, it was interesting how everybody kind of came together in that room. Uh, obviously, very tough times and everything, but 
Um, it's kind of amazing what some of these organizations can kind of do and how you can rally rally around something like that. Um, even though you know there's going to be a bunch of employees affected and everything. Um, so, I mean, like I said, that, that was a horrific day and everything. But, you know, we just you just got to kind of you got to kind of keep your head down and manage your way through it. We had to make a lot of very hard, painful decisions. Um, luckily, I haven't had to make those since. Um, you know, like I said, I bought uh, in 2001 when the when it was at the worst time. So all we had to do was go up. There was no going down. We didn't have much revenue versus, you know, some of the, as you remember, the, you know, WorldComs of the world, the Varios, the, you know, a lot of these guys were losing, you know, customers by the minute. And, uh, you know, so acquiring that firm out of bankruptcy, I had nowhere to go but up. So, you know, I didn't have, you know, quite the same issues that other companies had back in the day. What are some of the other lessons that you've learned through that whole that whole process that stick out where you, you know, kind of have built maybe some buffers in how you operate in the marketplace as a professional um, through, through those lessons? You know, I think never get out ahead of your ski tips, um, you know, and, you know, try and control your capital structure in your business as much as possible. Um, you know, when your cap table gets upside down or when you get, you know, interests unaligned, so to speak, you might get a, I like to say at Hosted Solutions, if we would have had a institutional investor in there when I bought that thing at three hundred seventy-five thousand dollars, they would have sold it for thirty million instead of three hundred and ten, which is what we let it run it run to. So, you know, controlling that cap table and you know running your business with a strong financial discipline, uh, you know, that works well in good times and in bad times. That's a great lesson. Um, it might be, you know, having spent a lot of time in Silicon Valley, the, uh, the lesson that I've heard learned over and over again, especially for first time entrepreneurs is if this is your first exit, take the exit, take, take the money off the table. But if you've already had that exit and we have some kind of a financial cushion, um, that you can play with, then let it ride and let it run. Um, and it's it's tough for people to make those decisions because there are those who have let it ride and let it run without having had some kind of a financial windfall in the past who may have been screwed and not screwed, but the, the business did not grow as they expected and they didn't have the exit that they expected. And so they regret not taking the money off the table when they could. Uh, but did, did any of that play into consideration for you during those times? I mean, you, I don't think you could have said it better and I don't think I can agree with you more. I, uh, a case in point was, you know, I had a bunch of ISP buddies back in the day, back in 2000, 2001, that said I was crazy for selling my business for all cash. Uh, NASDAQ was at 5000 Obviously, it's more than that today. But NASDAQ, you know, literally dropped uh, overnight, about four months after I sold my business. And, you know, here I am now with, you know, some cash, some sleep safe at night money. Um, and I was in a position now to go out and, you know, buy some businesses that had fallen on hard times. Uh, I, I can't agree with that enough. You know, that first exit, make sure you've got sleep safe at night money. You know, that that calms everything. And, you know, I, 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 I'm a full believer in, you know, sometimes people sell their businesses too early and everything. But there's a variety of way to kind of take chips off the table as you go. There's dividends. There's, you know, partial uh, exits. Um, 
where you can, you know, still potentially main control yet sell a piece of the business. Um, I'm in full agreement. You got to have that sleep safe at night money. It lets you think much more clear. It's it's good to hear hear you agree with that. Um, it's uh, it is a very hard conversation for a lot of people to have as they're going through the process. And uh, I've been a seed stage investor in uh, about seven different businesses, and I've seen, uh, thankfully, so far, all of them are scaling and growing. But they're each one of those entrepreneurs is in a different place of either wanting to get money off the table as quickly as they can, or wanting to let it ride, which to your point about cap tables uh, and outside investors, it's you, ha- you have to know that as an investor going in who the entrepreneur is and what their financial realities are, which can then help you understand where they're going to be coming from years down the road if and when there is some kind of an exit as to how they're going to think through that. And if those the interests of the entrepreneur align with you as an investor, um, and I've I've never been a VC. I've always been a seed stage angel investor, which means I have a minority stake in a business. Um, so without that understanding, it becomes very difficult because you you kind of don't know uh, where they're coming from, what they're thinking, and how they might want to approach some type type of an exit down the road. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a like I said, there's a bunch of ways to skin the cat. And I, I'm not a I'm 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 a big believer that debt is not a four letter word. You know, it's you know, a little bit of debt or leverage used appropriately, um, you know, and I don't say over leveraging like a lot of these private equity firms do, but, you know, very light leverage, you know, where, where you can maybe pay out a dividend um, uh, is, is not necessarily a bad thing if the business has stable recurring cash flow and customers. Mm-hmm. Uh, so let's let's dive into the time you took off after the uh, after the tier point um, chapter. Let's call it chapter of of your life. Um, and then, you know, what was the process of getting Pureport to where it is today? You know, you is it, I remember a brief conversation we had over lunch, and you saying that you were kind of sitting on the sidelines, uh, watching what was going on, waiting for the next opportunity. And then you had a couple conversations, met a few people, saw some technology that you thought would be interesting. Uh, but you know, let's let our listeners kind of hear from the horse's mouth, so to speak, what that was like for you, and what you saw going on in the market, and why you decided to jump back in. Sure. Well, I mean, I think you know a lot. A lot of this is just human behavior. A light lesson in human behavior. I, you know, I, I, I exited Hosted Solutions. Um, took seven years off, which is a long time uh, for anybody in terms of, uh, you know, kind of going dormant in the industry. But I had taken two board roles for some private equity firms. Uh, one was on TierPoint and one was on Compass Data Centers, which is a wholesale data center provider out of Dallas, Texas. So I was still keeping my kind of head in the game, but I just wasn't doing the active operator role. You know, I'd been doing it for a long time. You know, I've been very fortunate. I, I just thought for my health, um, it, it might be best to take a little bit of time off. I'll, I'll give you a little a little story. My, I actually developed this uh, symptom called alopecia areata back in the day when I was selling hosted to Windstream, where my hair started falling out and I started getting bald spots on the back of my head. And people are looking at me going, what's wrong with you? And I'm like, I don't know. Well, you know, I go to the doctor and he's like, it's stress, you know, and just, I guess the stress of the exit. 
um, had made some of my hair fall out. And so, you know, I sat there and said, you know, what's, you know, typical, what's it all worth, you know, take some time off, focus on family, focus on a little traveling, having a little fun, playing golf, whatever. Uh, so I did that. Um, you know, and I kind of enjoyed it and I embraced, embraced it and I kind of enjoyed sitting on those board rolls. Uh, then that same, uh, investment banker that uh, located the asset in Raleigh, North Carolina, Hosted Solutions, uh, picked up the phone. I told him I was looking to not go back into data centers. I love the data center business. Um, it's just very high CapEx. And, you know, margins had been eroding over time. You know, I'm sure my list, your listeners can kind of understand, especially the retail kind of managed guys with Amazon, Microsoft, everybody coming in, kind of poaching that turf. You know, it was very, very hard to be kind of a retail managed hosting provider. You know, the wholesale guys, you know, have pretty much the, I think, the strongest business models out there where they're growing at double digits. Um, and some of the some of the retail guys are only growing kind of mid single, high single digits. So I just didn't want to get back into that business. And, you know, it is like I said, I've had a telecom background. I've had a infrastructure, a little bit of a technology background, but. Um, I really felt like, you know, software defined networking was going to be a great play. It's a much lower CapEx, lower OpEx business, you know, kind of a SaaS underpinnings to it. So that same recurring kind of revenue stream, you know, high, high gross margin, high EBITDA margin business at scale. So, you know, I went to, uh, my investment banker turned me on to a group out of, uh, Pennsylvania by the name of Nuvim Networks that had developed this, uh, kind of multi-cloud routing uh, orchestration platform that um, required no infrastructure from a customer to not only get to a single cloud, but to get to as many clouds as they wanted to. So your traditional customer that connects into a, you know, kind of cloud provider today, you know, a lot of the telecom providers provide what's called layer two connection. Then they make the customer buy colo, configure the routing uh, and do all of that from their end. Um, You know, very few providers kind of, sit there and say, I can provide all of this for you infrastructure free and on a monthly recurring basis, manage it all, you know, get you from cloud to cloud all seamlessly. And not only that, they'd written some uh, APIs as well as, you know, kind of hooks into Ansible and Terraform, which are two kind of automation platforms where you literally can spin up and spin down resources by by the hour. So really cloud networking. Um, Nobody was doing this when I uh, acquired um, acquired these guys. At least nobody was doing it kind of by the hour and uh, providing it in a true kind of Amazon Azure-like fashion. So, you know, they'd written some real interesting technologies. They deployed in a few data centers. And so I acquired them in well, about almost a year and a half ago or so. So this is now, you know, kind of what, late, 20, uh, late 2018. And we spent the first six to seven months of PurePort, you know, getting some of the platform re-architected for scale, you know, expanding into multiple more data centers and launched in basically May of last year. So, you know, we're under a year long launch. Um, but what we really are doing is, you know, really trying to provide automation and orchestration to spin up network resources. And if you're in the data center business, you understand how complex that is to, you know, get your customers to the cloud, but not only that, get them to the multi-cloud. And 
you know, your traditional telecom provider is still doing stuff via spreadsheet. They're taking 60 to 90 days to turn this connectivity up. You know, we can turn this thing up in 90 seconds. So, you know, we've got some really, uh, really unique architecture, unique platform. And, you know, as this stuff gets more and more complex, you know, you're going to see us get further and further uh, automated into the stacks of different companies. So, you know, we've got some really interesting announcements we're going to be making with some, you know, very large uh, providers that are going to be rolling out our services here in the next few months. Uh, we're really excited about that. But, you know, we're going to go deeper and deeper into cloud providers infrastructure, you know, focus on things like Kubernetes, a lot these deaths they want to spin up resources and spin them down, can literally do so with a command line interface. So, you know, we're early in the game. We're very early in the game. But, you know, this revolution is going to start playing out. And it's going to start playing out in networking, much like it has in compute and storage. And we think PurePort's going to be positioned pretty well to uh, with a variety of these companies. So... You know, I give you a, a case in point is something like, uh, you know, these SD-WAN providers, you know, the typical, you know, VeloClouds, um, you know, Silver Peaks, uh, Fortinet, you know, they can kind of get their customers to a single cloud, but they can't do it, you know, automated to get their customers to multi-cloud. So, you know, we're building these SD-WAN connectors that will literally let customers that have Fortinet, Silver Peak, uh, or VeloCloud platform automatically route seamlessly, not only to the cloud, but to the multi-cloud. So you've got Google, you've got Amazon, you've got Microsoft, you've got Salesforce. You know, you can do that all seamlessly, turned up, you know, and integrated with some of these other different providers where you might not even know PurePort exists in the background. So we may be just doing the plumbing for all of this for some of these guys. Let's let's dive in on that. And the, the interconnection playbook that we have out at interconnectionplaybook.com that PurePort was was a part of uh, getting up off the ground and, and very much appreciated that as we try to put some agnostic uh, eyeballs and optics around what's happening in the marketplace. As you're talking to customers and trying to explain what makes PurePort different than the likes of, let's say, Equinix's ECX platform or, or mm-hmm. Megaport, how how does that how do you explain that to customers to help them wrap their head around what makes you different from those those offerings? Well, I, you know, I think that it, it it becomes you know challenging because there's a lot of there's a lot of words terminology uh, going on out there in the marketplace, and there's a lot of providers that uh, say they can do certain things. At the end of the day, you know, can't really do that. I mean. You know, like Equinix, a case in point, you know, you've got to, for the most part, be an Equinix customer, have Equinix Colo. Um, they've just launched a network edge platform, but you still have to, you know, conv- configure your own resources. And it's not a managed services service. So, you know, to get to like multi-cloud with Equinix, say, you still have to, you know, on your own provision compute. You've got to provision the you know, say Cisco CSR, a Juniper SRX, um, and you've got to manage that all on your own. You know, this is what we're doing is, you know, buy, buy the drink, turn up, turn down. We manage all the routing for you so that you have, 
no, you don't have to be a BGP expert. You literally can turn this thing up in minutes or seconds, you know, built into, say, Ansible, Terraform, Chef, Puppet, um, or a CLI to turn these things up in seconds. You just can't do that with another service provider. You're spending days, weeks, or months trying to get cloud connectivity turned up. And not only that, you got to manage it on your own. I think that's key for people to to know and to realize is that the ability to operate this and set it up remotely um, in such a short period of time is key. One of those pieces that's required, though, obviously, is the physical connection already in place between you and any carrier, right? So it's not like you can just log in from anywhere and set up a, a physical connection Right. That, that's still there's a physical layer that needs to be established. Um, no, no, not really. I mean, yeah, yes, if it's a private connection, uh, you know, using a local loop. But, you know, we've got an IPsec integration and soon to have a uh, remote access product where a developer can be, you know, some of these organizations have 10, 20,000 develop, developers where they literally could, you know, IPsec right into the cloud uh, in seconds using our platform. So, you know, I think that's a key differentiating differentiator in our multi-cloud fabric is we allowed you to come in privately with a local loop or we allowed you to come in with a VPN connection or a remote access connection for your laptop, iPhone. So, you know, we're really, you know, going, going deep. And, uh, you know, I think it's going to be, you know, very powerful for all these organizations with these developers that need to spin up resources, spin them down, um, and not have to worry about the physical piece of the networking. Like, I guess where I was going with that comment is as I've explained these services to customers, they tend to, um, you know, the, the whole software defined network is a, is a new thing for the vast majority yep. of engineers and even network engineers. Um, so when you say you can provision this and get it up and running super quick, they say, oh, so if I need a new, you know, uh, port from Zayo into my office, I can just do it virtually? And the answer, you know, is it depends, right? But you still have to work with Zayo to get a contract and make sure that they're even on net uh, inside your building to set up that physical connection. If you already have a connection with a carrier and or multiple carriers, you can provision into the cloud and set up resources from wherever your data is living into whichever cloud resource you want to go to extremely quickly, but you need to have that physical layer present and have to have that established. Um, yeah. Like I did, said, yeah, I agreed. Yeah. yeah. That, that local loop is critical. If you really want a hard connection into your business, you've, you've either got to have it or you've got to order it. So, you know, what we're talking about is if you don't need that hard connection, you can do it right over the top. Okay. So we're talking about right. over the top connection into the cloud. Um, but not only that, but there's, you know, there's customers that want, that have some branch offices where they want to hardwire and there's some that the VPN will do just fine for them. You know, there's mm -hmm. a lot of SD-WAN implementations that are just doing, you know, an over-the-top implementation that need to get to the multi-cloud. So there's all sorts of scenarios, but no, I'm, I'm not trying to uh, make this easier than it is. You absolutely, if you don't want to come in over the top, you, you've got to have that hardwire provision.
Yeah, and that, that may sound obvious, right, to, to you and I, but I'm telling you, I want to bang my head against the wall a few times as I'm talking to customers, trying to explain to them yeah. that, no, this is not magic. You still need to have some type of physical connection in place to get you um, live onto the internet at large. And then from there, PurePort or any a lot of the interconnection providers through virtual routers or, or whatever it might be can then um, allow you access into those environments. Um, exactly. And the, let's, let's dive into, you know, some of the key benefits of leveraging this type of, and, and use cases of leveraging this type of a resource for a customer. So if I am a, um, uh, a regional bank, let's just say, um, and I have an environment in AWS, and currently I'm accessing that environment, leveraging just the public internet at large, what can you do for me? And, and what are the terms of that contract look like? And what is that, how is that structured? And what, what's the benefit of me leveraging someone like PurePort? Sure. Well, I mean, you know, a typical bank, um, we're, we're really seeing success. And, you know, just to try and simplify this is, you know, say you've, got a, you, say you've got a bank, say it's Bank of America, you know, and they've got, you know, a variety of different kind of transport layers delivered at certain branch offices, they may have SD-WAN at one, they may have a physical router, they may have a, uh, um, they, may, they may not have any connectivity at all. So, you know, being able to, you know, come in over the top as well as through private connectivity and then get to not only the cloud, but the multi-cloud. And I think, you know, where, where PeerPort really stands out is, you know, customers that have uh, multiple cloud providers, you know, with multiple different transport into their, you know, facilities. That becomes very, very complex um, for customers to get to not only a single cloud, but to multi-cloud. So we provide this all kind of virtually all spin up on demand in a month-to-month or hourly fashion, as well as we have two and three-year contracts. So, you know, your typical carrier is going to sign you to a minimum one year, minimum two, minimum three year. They're going to give you a little discount for extending the terms. You know, this gives you, you know, this frees you from that, you know, kind of telecom, you know, hell, so to speak, where you're having to sign these long-term contracts. You're having to over-provision your networking capacity. We can sell this in 50 meg increments all the way up to multi-gig connectivity, all done in a, you know, hourly or monthly type of fashion. So, you know, we're really trying to make this cloud-like for customers, make it very easy to turn up, simple to provision, and automate your networking. You know, customers have automated their compute, they've automated their storage, they turn it up on the fly. Why can't you do that with networking? You can. And that's a big uh, use case, huge use case for all of these types of services is the, the time that it used to take to provision and deploy these types of inter- interconnection services has been ridiculously long up until just a handful of years ago. Um, and that's, that's truly, it's increasing cloud adoption at a rate that is unprecedented. Um, and it's, I think it's, it's for the benefit of everybody. In the marketplace, the the other key that you mentioned, and I just want to make sure that people are aware, is the the billing process, right? So the need for signing long term contracts 
um, goes out the window. Of course, they're available just like they are with cloud services. If you want to sign a long-term contract, you can get a reduced rate for guaranteed uh, commitment to resources. And you have a similar type of pricing plan, right? Yeah, it's just consumption. Whatever you use, you kind of get billed for. And you can start as, like I said, as low as a 50 meg and you can scale it up. You can turn it down on the fly. You can, you know, so if you've got spiky bandwidth demands, you can literally spin it up and then spin it back down. You, you literally can do this on an hourly basis. That's that's how our platform builds. So the um, the future of our industry and and these types of services, where where do you think things are going? You know, I'm I'm very uh, bullish <laughs> on the marketplace in the industry, and as I've alluded a few times, I think we're maybe not infants anymore in this industry, but toddlers. And there's a lot more growth and expansion that's going to be happening, especially on the edge uh, in the tier two, tier three markets. Um, what is what is your take? Do you see a similar dynamic playing out in the marketplace, or or what are your thoughts? Yeah, well, we're certainly hopeful. You know, we're, we, we think we're a year or two ahead of the curve as far as, like I said, um, our integration into some of these uh, automation platforms where you literally can push a button and spin up these type of resources. There's no other provider, you know, that offers that out there. So if you're, and I, you know, I may be speaking foreign language to, to some people, but I think a lot of people have heard of, you know, Amazon, uh, not Amazon, Ansible, you know, T- Terraform, Chef, Puppet. You know, these people now are spinning. You can literally spin up, you know, VPCs. You can spin up uh, storage resources. And now you can spin up networking resources all with the push of a button. You know, and that's where this thing is going. True cloud agility, true um, cloud native type of architecture, true, you know, integration with, uh, you know, everybody from SD-WAN providers to, you know, the cable companies. All of these guys are going to be able to offer these kind of seamless services. And like I said, we... We may just be the plumbing in the background behind some of these guys, where um, you don't, you may not even know PurePort's the one provisioning this stuff, but true kind of API integration into these kind of multi-cloud fabrics is, uh, you know, where you're giving developers power, you're giving them the agility to 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 test new architectures, to spin up, to spin down. Um, you know, we think that's that's a pretty powerful message. We're not quite there yet. But I think within the next few years, you know, our platform is going to be you know, positioned very nicely. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And it was interesting. I was talking with, uh, I don't know if you know or have heard of Data Foundry, but I was talking with Ed Hennigan, who's the CTO over there on one of my episodes a few, I think it came out in February. Um, and his, he has a different take on this. You know, I, I believe that software is the future in all regards, in all aspects. Um, and that the underlying infrastructure is absolutely critical to support all that software, obviously. But uh, his take is that this whole software-defined network piece and interconnection is um, kind of uh, hype and that the true needs of enterprise customers is not going to be uh, needing all these different interconnections to all these different service providers. And you know that's his opinion, which I don't share because I just I, I look at the hard data and hard numbers of how many more customers are using and adopting cloud and how many more people are looking at having direct connections into different SaaS applications that they're using. And they're growing significantly month over month. If you just look at the data that's coming out from the likes of uh, Megaport and Digital Realty and Equinix and 
different peering providers, um, that, that adoption is growing. Now, does it mean that every single customer on the planet is going to want and or require these services? No, it doesn't. Uh, but as more and more data becomes centralized within just a handful of hyperscalers and other managed service and hosting providers and data center providers, um, that ease of access to and from those facilities, I think, I don't see how that's not going to continue to grow. Uh, agreed wholeheartedly. I, I, sh- I, t- I share a totally different take, mainly because, you know, I, uh, I guess a good way to maybe describe it is because we're, we're living proof. We're talking to some of these companies that have these DevOps teams that, you know, are facing these challenges every day with spinning up resources into these cloud service providers, and they just can't get it done. And so, you know, we're, we're, we're signing up customers you know, at a, at a pretty healthy clip right now. But not only that, you've got, uh, when we talk about interconnection, one of the, one of the hidden things in this interconnection strategy is, so, you know, if, uh, most people I think have heard of Direct Connect, you've heard of Express Route, you've heard of Google Cloud Interconnect. But, you know, these interconnection providers like Pureport, like Megaport, like Equinix, um, you know, w- we can save customers dramatically on their egress bandwidth. So, you know, if you're a virtual desktop organization, if you're anybody that's pushing a lot of egress bandwidth, you're paying probably four times more than you need to be paying by doing this through Direct Connect, Express Route, or Google Cloud Interconnect. So a lot of companies, you know, especially as they go remote from home and go to virtual, they're going to have a big egress bill waiting for them in the next month or two. And they're going to need to start familiarizing themselves with Direct Connect, with Express Route, and with Google Cloud Interconnect type of services, because they're 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 just going to get the whammy uh, on their monthly uh, bill from Amazon on egress port charges. You hit on my next question was speaking about egress fees and uh, the advantage of, of leveraging these services to drastically reduce those. And I've seen clients uh, who will spin up these resources specifically because they want to migrate from one cloud to another cloud and then spin them down and save a stupid amount of money in the process um, for doing so. So that's, that's another one of the key key advantages that I think customers need to spend time talking through and, and uh, learning about. The um, Is there anything that we haven't covered yet that, you know, a question that you wish I could have asked or would have asked that has to do with what you guys are doing and what makes you guys stand out in the marketplace relative to some of the other interconnection platform providers? No, I think you, I think you've covered it pretty well. I think the audience we're talking to, you know, is, uh, is, is perfectly suited for this kind of content as they start trying to figure out their, you know, cloud connectivity and multi-cloud kind of strategies, you know, hopefully they'll consider Pureport in the future. Yeah. Um, well, some of the, the last questions I have for you are uh, going back to some of the, the earlier threads around lessons you've learned. And as a young professional, did you, you mentioned Peter Hopper mm-hmm. as a mentor of yours. Um, did he or maybe, you know, I know you had a, a close relationship with your father growing up in, in business and whatnot. Um, were there any key lessons that they taught you or mantras that they had that you've adopted? Um, that you think would be useful for people who are listening to to also think about and meditate on? 
Yeah, I mean, I think is you know this applies to business or you know personal financial or anything is you know never get out ahead of your ski tips. You know, uh, you know, always make sure you've got. You know, it's great to have a strong, you know, technology bent to your business. It's strong to be very entrepreneurial. You know, I've done it. This is my third entrepreneurial kind of company. Uh, I want to stay very entrepreneurial in how I think. But financial discipline is key. You know, making sure you understand your income statement, your balance sheet, you know, where you are, you know, kind of looking at some of these metrics that your traditional maybe, you know, entrepreneur or technology guy um maybe doesn't pay much attention to, you know, I, I, I would recommend that because, you know, I've, I've, I've learned a lot. I've gotten my teeth teeth kicked in enough to know that I don't like getting my teeth kicked in, you know, maybe as an older guy, it's made me a little bit more conservative sometimes in how I think. Um, but you know, that's been kind of my playbook is never getting out ahead of my ski tips and, you know, making sure we've got a pretty strong, you know, underlying focus around everything from, you know, customer acquisition to where we are within the balance sheet, the income statement, capital table, cap structure, um, board makeup. You know, I, I can kind of go on and on because I've seen, you know, so many organizations and so many people get tripped up by this. But, you know, it's it's great to have a great technology and everything, but, you know, you still got to run the underlying business and operate it, you know, with strong financial discipline. So how how does one balance you know an entrepreneurial risk-taking drive with that financial discipline because i'm asking because i see two two camps really and there's very few who are in that you know gray area there's the 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 bank private equity venture capital money that purely looks at spreadsheets and then you have the entrepreneurial risk taker who's out there selling the dream. Um, I see very few who are able to truly balance those two. And I'm on analyst calls on a somewhat regular basis. And one of the key paradigms that I'm trying to explain to a lot of these analysts about the differences between the different uh, data center providers in the marketplace today is what they don't understand is the personal relationships that are built between clients and providers and who's managing those relationships. And certain M&A activity may look great on paper, but uh, when you look at the fundamentals of what's happening in the relationships within the business and whether it's the relationships between the management team and the uh, feet on the street closing deals and operating with the customer, or it's the relationship between uh, the customer and the sales team that may be constantly being turned over, right? They don't view it. They don't view a business through that those optics, and I think that's troublesome. And I'm wondering, do you see that too? Am I crazy here thinking that a lot of the the money in our our industry right now is just um, I don't want to say blind to it, but maybe not exposed and understanding the importance of those relationships? And maybe I'm just speaking to myself here, but. Um, that same paradigm we already talked about as it relates to the, the telecommunication providers when they were buying managed service and data center companies, not fully understanding how those dynamics would play out, the interpersonal relationships and knowledge sharing and um, you know, who was buying what services within an organization um, and how you know, they may be two totally different people, even though it's all technology, you know, the network engineer isn't responsible for buying managed, hosted, backup disaster recovery services. Um, so though you can say, hey, we have an account, 
with this company, the buyer is someone maybe probably totally different uh, for the type of service that you're selling to. And you know, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Maybe you don't need any. It's just me speaking out no, loud. I've, got a, lot, loud here, I've but. got a lot of thoughts on that. I mean, I I agree wholeheartedly with you. I mean, being on analyst calls can make you want to pull your hair out because I mean, at the end of the day, you cannot run a business via a spreadsheet. You know, as an operator in these businesses, it's great to have that spreadsheet and it's great to look at this stuff. But you know, what's your organization doing? What's customer satisfaction look like? How are some of these relationships playing out with your customers? What do you know? You know, there's a lot of things that, you know, management teams know that these analysts don't know. And it's very tough to educate these analysts on some of the relationships, you know, that are getting built with either whether these hyperscale providers or some of these other other relationships with other customers that an analyst is never going to know. He doesn't necessarily want to know. And he's just looking at a spreadsheet. And, you know, I've dealt with private equity guys. I've done the M&A thing. You know, they're doing the cohort analysis. They're, you know, some of these numbers don't necessarily tell you, you know, about the rhythm of the business and kind of what's out there, you know. And so, you know, I agree wholeheartedly. Analyst calls can, you know, they can be very frustrating, but, you know, they're, they've got a job to do too, I guess. So the last question I have for you, is one that I ask all my listeners, and I'm sure I know the answer to this, my friend, but uh, do you love data centers? Yeah, I love data centers. You know, I think I think data centers, you know, especially the wholesale guys, uh, you know, are going to, or the, some of the, the edge guys are now kind of back in play a little bit. Um, you know, I think, you know, I think some of these guys are positioned really well to have success in the future. You know, they've got deep relationships and especially some of these tier two guys, um, you know, they've got they've got deep relationships with thousands of customers. And uh, not only that, but as everybody looks to kind of get out to the edge, you know, they're kind of back in vogue a little bit. And, you know, the more advanced network services they can provide to get those edge customers into the cloud, into the multi cloud, uh, you know, and kind of move those customers up the stack and make sure they have you know, the ability for these customers to scale, you know, I think some of these guys are in great shape. You know, that being said, you know, some of these hyperscale wholesale data centers, you know, I'm, I've sat on the board of some, you know, I'm invested in some, some of these guys, you know, they've got very, very strong business models, guys like Equinix and Digital Realty. Um, you know, they're, they're, they've got lower costs of capital, you know, they've, you know, been able to build, you know, massive footprint data centers for, you know, less dollars per kilowatt than the average guys, you know, they've got size and scale and cost of capital advantages. They're going to continue to serve them well in the future. Yeah, I agree. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk today. Hopefully this was beneficial for our listeners and gain some nuggets of knowledge out of this. And Rich, I appreciate having you here in my backyard and Hopefully we can get together here in the near future. I've got uh, actually a lot of new news that's about to drop on my end that I'd love to share with you. And uh, hopefully once we make it through this uh, locked in place, um, you know, pandemic going on right now, we can get back out into the world and kiss some babies and shake some hands and get back to doing the good work that we were normally used to doing. That sounds great, Sean. Love to hear the update. And uh, once this clears up, let's get out. Thank you, my friend. Appreciate it. Have a good one. All right. Take care. 
So there you have it, folks. I hope you enjoyed the interview. And before I sign off, I really need you to know that we really do love data centers over here at Open Spectrum. It's not just a, a catchy tagline for a podcast. They are our passion and our livelihood. And I encourage you to learn more about how we serve buyers, service providers, agents, master agents, and investors in the data center hosting network and cloud services space. Uh, you can check out our website at www.openspectruminc.com where you can download a mountain of free content that we produce, such as the numerous regional market reports and excerpts from our book, The Data Center Colocation Industry Playbook, that is now on its fourth edition. You can also read the show notes and links from this podcast at www.openspectruminc.com forward slash I love data centers. Have a great week, and I will see you and hopefully hear from you soon.